0: Multiply Lake Norman, how we doing today? Everybody feeling good? Couple of you, couple of you. What I enjoy about Sunday mornings when I tell you to turn and greet two or three people, it's like a family reunion. Like you just turn and start talking to people and I absolutely love it. Well, today we are in for a treat. Uh, We have a gentleman by the name of Dr. Frank Turrett coming to speak uh, to us today. I'm excited. Uh, First service was absolutely phenomenal. Uh, But before we get started, let me tell you a little bit about Dr. Frank. So Dr. Frank has authored or co-authored several different books, and and I'm going to throw out a few of them uh, to you guys today. But the first one that I want to tell you about is Hollywood Heroes, How Your Favorite Movies Reveal God. So a great book that, that Dr. Frank wrote. First one to raise their hand gets the book. I saw a hand over here. Ashley, you were not first. How, I don't know how you were first either because you've been in the hospital for like four days, but now you're out. Praise the Lord. All right, can you catch? All right, your fine motor skills are getting better. There we go. Hey, next book that we want to tell you about is correct, but not politically correct. Col- uh, Darren, I didn't even say it. But you did it, correct, but not politically correct. And the last one that I want to toss out, um, this, this title, this title, some of y'all are raising your hands already. It doesn't work that way, all right? doesn't work that way. You're like the person on Jeopardy that nobody likes, like they hit the button before the question's even fully read. But I, I love the title of this book, and, and uh, regardless of where you are in your walk with Jesus, man, this title just grabs me every time. I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. Hey, if you are you're <laughs> If you're wondering what kind of church we came you came to this morning. That's the kind of church we came to, you came to. Listen, we know we have a ton of visitors in the room, so without further ado, would you give Dr. Frank Turek a multiply welcome.
1: Thanks, brother. Should have seen that coming. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Open your Bible or your cell phone to Romans chapter 13, because that's where we're going. Romans chapter 13. As you know, here at Multiply Church, we're going through the book of Romans. Pastor Zach was in chapter 12 last week, so we're just continuing and we're going into Romans 13. Now, ladies and gentlemen, I believe the Bible is the inerrant word of God, but I got a big problem with the first verse of Romans chapter 13, and here it is. Everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. Really? Really? We're always supposed to submit to the governing authorities? Let me ask you a question. Let's suppose that you uh, live in Nazi Germany in 1943, and you're hiding Jews in your attic, and you get a knock at the door. Schnell! Schnell! You open the door. Nazi soldiers standing there. Has du here, Juden? You have Jews here? What do you say? You say, I don't speak German. <laughs> no, I mean, what do you do? What are you supposed to do? Thou shalt not bear false witness. And you're supposed to obey the governing authorities. These are the governing authorities. What do you do? This is the interactive portion of the program. What do you do? You don't know? You just say, I don't know if I'm Jews? What do you say? You say, no? You're going to lie, Kim? Kim's going to lie. Thou shall not bear false witness. Love your neighbor. So what does that mean? You're, is the Nazi your neighbor? He's not an attractive neighbor, but. What do you. You shut the door. (laughs) Has to hear you, (laughs) That's going to (laughs) work. I haven't seen
0: them. They close the door in the last 30 seconds. Hmm.
1: Well, let's come back to this. Let's uh, look at the great book of Romans from 13,000 feet in order to try and understand what's going on here. Now, as Pastor Zach probably told you, the book of Romans was written by the Apostle Paul probably from Corinth in about 57 AD, and he's writing to the biggest church in the world or the biggest city in the world, Rome, and he hasn't been there yet. So he wants to write to them and give them an overview uh, with a lot of theological detail about what Christianity' is all about. And this is a theological treatise. I mean, it is an argument from day or from ver- verse one to the end of the book. And in the first the first seventeen verses of the book of Romans, Paul actually puts all the essentials of Christianity in the first 17 verses which we don't have time to get into. We're going to start at verse 18, because that's where Paul begins his argument. Uh, But before we do, here's the big breakdown of the book. It's in two basic sections, how to get right with God, which is chapters 1 to 11. And then chapters 12 to 16 is how to live right for God. In fact, the first word in chapter 12 is the word, therefore. And whenever you see the word therefore in the Bible, you ought to ask yourself, why is that word therefore? Why is the word therefore there? What does therefore normally mean? Well, since this is true, then this. And Paul has given 11 chapters of theology, and now he says, therefore, live this way. What is the theology he gives? We'll start in chapter 1 on how to get right with God. That's where Paul starts talking about sin, how everyone is condemned. And he starts in chapter 1, verse 18, and he goes all the way to chapter 3, verse 20. He says, all the pagans are condemned, those that aren't Jews, and uh, they're suppressing the truth and unrighteousness to go their own way. By the way, if you ever want to read a perfect description of 2023 in America... Read Romans chapter 1, verses 18 to 32. I don't have time to get into it now, but he's describing exactly what's going on today, 2,000 years ago. And he says, not only the pagans, sinners, so are the Jews. That's what he talks about in chapter 2. And in chapter 3, he says, everyone's condemned. Not one is good. They're all fallen. There is no one good, not even one. All have fallen short. And then there's a key word in the beginning of verse 21 of chapter 3. It's the word but. Everyone's condemned, Paul. This is really bad news. But now a righteousness from God, apart from the law, has been accomplished. How's it been accomplished? By Jesus. That's atonement. Jesus has come, lived the perfect life in our place, taken our punishment on himself. So despite the fact you can't live up to the law, Jesus has, and by trusting in Him, you're not only forgiven, but you're given His righteousness. You know, everyone's trying to find their identity today. You know, Christianity is the only worldview where you don't achieve your identity, you receive your identity. It's just given to you. It's free. He's accomplished it. So when you become a Christian, you're not only forgiven, but you're given His righteousness. So when Jesus looks at you... Or when God looks at you, he sees Jesus. That's right. I know it's going to sound like an odd thought, but do you realize that if you're a Christian, God never punishes you? Wow. Why? Because he's already punished Jesus. He may discipline you. There's a difference. Yeah. Oh, right. But he doesn't punish you because he's already punished Jesus. You may experience the natural consequences of sin, yep. broken relationships, disease, that kind of thing. But it's not God punishing you. He's already punished Jesus because of the atonement. And he talks about that all the way through chapter 5. In chapter 6, he starts talking more about grace, particularly when it comes to sanctification. You know, justification is how you get saved. Sanctification is how how you become more and more like Jesus. And how do you become more and more like Jesus? Not by following a bunch of laws, but by trusting in Christ and relying on the grace he gives you Because you're so grateful for what he's done for you that you're going to follow his laws out of gratitude, not out of obligation. Jesus says, if you love me, you're going to keep my commandments. Well, he loved us first, so we love him back. And then beginning in uh, chapter 18, verse 18, might be the peak of the entire Bible. That's when Paul starts talking about eternity, glorification, where he says... That nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. Not nakedness, not sword, nor hardship, nor famine. Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. And if you're in Christ, you are predestined to be glorified. That one day in eternity, you are going to be in the presence of God. And you are going to be an heir to his throne. And nothing can take that away. And you might want to think about this as sage. Paul's is a wise sage showing you how life really works. That we're all sinners, we all need atonement, that grace is the way we ultimately are reconciled to Christ and that eternity is secure. Now, it would have made perfect sense at this point, if you're the Apostle Paul, to after ending chapter 8, which is the highlight of the Bible, Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ to say, therefore, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, which is what chapter 12 is. But he doesn't go from chapter 8 to 12. He has a detour right in the middle of the book. What's the detour? Well, the people in Rome are going, Paul, you're saying that all this is true? What about the Jews? Why don't so many of them not believe And so he spends three chapters talking about Israel. Chapter 9, he's talking about Israel's past, particularly Israel's election. I know you've heard people say, oh, in chapter 9, Paul talks about God saying, I'll have mercy on whom I have mercy, and God hardened Pharaoh's heart, and God is arbitrarily choosing some to be saved and others not to be saved. That's not what chapter 9 is about. It's about Israel's election, not the election of individuals to salvation. And all the hardening to heart stuff has to do with Egyptian theology. It has nothing to do with God arbitrarily picking people and sending them to hell, despite what some Calvinists say. Now, I don't have time to get into it now because we're not predestined to get into it now. But that's, what not, that's not what chapter 9 is about. Chapter 10 is talking about Israel's present rejection. But Paul says there's a future for Israel. Israel's future restoration, that's chapter 11. So that's how to get right with God. Now, how about how to live right for God? Chapter 12 is our duty to God, which is what Pastor Zach covered last week. We're talking today about our duty to government, that's chapter 13. And then chapters 14 to 16 is our duty to one another. So that's the big overview from 30,000 feet. We're talking about chapter 13, our duty to government. So let's read the first eight verses of Romans chapter 13. We don't have time to go through the whole chapter here, but just the first eight verses. And I'm reading from the NIV, the nearly inspired version. Here we go. Everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which is established, God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, he who rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Let's pause there for a second. Do you think Hitler didn't pose terror for those who did right? sure seems he was a terror to those that did right. How is this verse true then? Let's keep reading. Do you want to be free from the fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right and he will commend you. For he is God's servant to do good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword for nothing. He is God's servant and agent of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, there's that word again. It is necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but because of conscience. This is also why you pay taxes, for the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. Give everyone what you owe him. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. Sure seems like we are supposed to submit to the governing authorities all the time. And this seems to be saying that the governing authorities are always doing good, and so we need to submit. Is that true? Sure doesn't seem to be by experience, does it? All right, let's ask the question what is the purpose of government? Why do we have government at all? You can say. To protect. Well, actually, Paul answers the question in verse 4. Here it is. He, meaning the ruler in this point, is God's servant, an agent of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. The purpose of government is to protect innocent people from evil. That's the primary role of government. That's why we have a government. If we didn't have a government, there would be anarchy. And anarchy tends to hurt the weak, doesn't it? In fact, let me ask you a question. What would happen if, say, Mooresville Police today announced that tomorrow there will absolutely be no prosecution or law enforcement? Tomorrow, for 24 hours, you can do whatever you want, and you will never be prosecuted for it. What do you think would happen? Even in this nice southern town... Do you think the Lexus dealer would make it? Do you think Best Buy would still be open for business? How many people would be raped? How many people would be murdered because there was no law enforcement? You know, years ago in the 70s, there was a blackout in New York City. Power went out for several days. What happened? Anarchy. Because the human heart is bent toward evil. Think about this. It's easy to be bad. It's hard to be good. It's hard to be good. And if you think human beings are essentially good, you have never experienced the terrible twos. <laughs> right? Now, my grandson, who's right here, he's three, he just turned three two days ago. He did not really experience the terrible twos because his mom is really good. But for a two-year-old, you don't have to teach a two-year-old to say mine, right? The two-year-old knows that. What do you have to teach a two-year-old to do? To share, right? Because we're bent toward evil. Our nature's bent toward evil. That's what depravity is. In fact, Augustine famously said that depravity is the propensity to sin and the necessity to die. We are bent toward evil. Easy to be bad, hard to be good. In fact, there was... Probably nothing more pithy about government ever said than James Madison, who is the father of the United States Constitution. He's the guy that really wrote the United States Constitution. Remember, Jefferson wrote the Declaration of Independence. Madison wrote the Constitution. Here's what he said in Federalist Paper number 51. He said, if men were angels, no government would be necessary. I mean, think about it. If we were all good and bent toward good, would you need a government? No, if we're angels, there's no need for government, but we're not angels, we're fallen. And Christianity, of course, gets everything right, but if it's something that it gets right more than anything else compared to other worldviews, is that people are inherently evil. Most other world religions think that people are inherently good, they're not. In fact, Jeremiah famously said this, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? This is why, by the way, the uh, mantra of our day, follow your heart, couldn't be worse advice. If you follow your heart without moral restraint, you're going to wind up addicted, broken, alone, and probably prematurely dead. What would happen if you followed every impulse of your heart? Could you hold a relationship together? Would you still have your kids after about two weeks? <laughs> no. Would you, would you have any financial security? No. If you followed every impulse of your heart, you would destroy yourself quite quickly. Yet, that's all the world tells you. Follow your heart. Follow your heart. Couldn't be worse advice. You know what the Bible actually says? I think this is the second most important verse in the entire Bible. The first has to do with the gospel, but this is the second. It comes from the Old Testament. It's Proverbs 4.23. It says, above all else, guard your heart because everything you do flows from it. It doesn't say follow your heart. It says guard your heart. You need to guard against your sinful nature. And we all have a sinful nature. Even the Babylon Bee discovered this. I mean, here's what they found. Study finds 100% of men would eat any fruit given to them by a naked woman. (laughs) You think I'd do better than Adam? No, you wouldn't. You do the same thing. Because we're fallen. That's why we need a government. And we need a government of people that are going to govern rightly. Uh, One of the founders of our Nation, John Adams said, Our Constitution is made only for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate for the governance of any other. If you don't have moral people who are willing to check themselves, eventually the country's going to disintegrate. Think he was a prophet? That's where we're heading disintegration. But should Christians be involved in politics? There's a lot of Christians say no, and I don't understand why. I mean, James Madison was a Christian. In fact, 52 of the 55 founding fathers were all Christians, and they got involved in politics. If they hadn't gotten involved, America wouldn't exist. And I hear a lot of people saying, oh, no, 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 we just ought to preach the gospel. Don't get involved politically. When people say that, I just show them one picture. Here's the picture I show them you guys, tell me what do you think? What 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 is this? What do you think this is? Yeah, that's the Korean Peninsula, right? Uh, this is the thirty-eighth parallel. We fought a war over that. Turned out to be a stalemate. Now this is a peninsula of homogeneous, ethnically homogeneous people, Koreans. Yet South Korea is filled with productivity. It's filled with light. It's got the gospel. Uh, There's a good minority of people in there who are Christians. North Korea, on the other hand, is a concentration camp. There is one major reason for the difference between South and North Korea. What is it? Don't say electricity. We know that, but (laughs) what? The politics, right? The South has political freedom. The North does not. The North is a concentration camp. So when people say, well, we just got to preach the gospel, first of all, can you preach the gospel in North Korea? No. Not legally. And when people say, oh, we just should just preach the gospel, I say, well, if you don't think politics are important, you don't think the gospel's important. Why? Because our very ability to preach and live the gospel is partially dependent on what laws are made. I mean, we take it for granted in America, yeah. but it's not this way around the world. Go to some of the countries I've been to, Iran, Saudi Arabia, China. Can we have multiply multiply church in those countries? No. Why? Because politically they've ruled it out. And so we have to be engaged. It's not our first priority, but it certainly is a priority. If we're going to preach and live the gospel, politics affects our ability to do so. You can also look at it this way. Let me ask you a question. Should Christians care how people are treated? Is any Christian going to say no? Now we're all going to say yes. Next question. Should Christians care how people are treated by their government? Yes. Well, yeah. If Christians are supposed to care how people are treated. We ought to care how people are treated by their government. Welcome to politics, ladies and gentlemen. It's unavoidable. You can't avoid it if you're a Christian. In fact, you're supposed to be a Christian 24-7, 360, right? In everything you do, whether it's politics or not. And in fact, if you think about this, politics affects every area of your life. It affects your church, your family, your health, your money, your business, your freedom, your property, your school, your safety, the poor, the unborn, the gospel, your ability to live it. Everyone and everything is affected in some way by the laws made in Washington, the laws made in Raleigh, and the laws made here in Mooresville. And Christians are supposed to stay out of it? What atheist came up with that plan? Are atheists only qualified to run the country? Where did we get that idea? Oh, you can't. That separation of church and state. This has nothing to do with church and state. We're not trying to legislate religion. We're not trying to tell people where, when, how, or if to worship. That would be legislating religion. But we are trying to tell people how they ought to treat one another, and that's legislating morality, and all laws legislate morality. Every law declares one behavior right and the opposite behavior wrong. The only question is whose morality will we legislate? And I don't want to legislate mine. I don't want to legislate yours. I want to legislate the morality. The one Thomas Jefferson said was self-evident. So everyone's trying to do that. Christians ought to get involved. And by the way, I know it's going to sound crazy, but Jesus was involved in politics. Who did he go after the most? And who were the Pharisees? What was their job? Pharisees were the lawmakers in Israel. Some of them were on the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council, to whom Rome delegated the day-to-day lawmaking authority to. They were the ones that made the laws. They were the politicians, and Jesus went after these people. Notice what he said to them in Matthew 23. By the way, if you think Jesus was a nice guy who's never said a bad word about anyone. You have not read Matthew 23. Look what he says to these people. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you've neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. You blind guides. You strain out a gnat but swallow a camel. Notice. He's saying you're tithing your spices, but you're forgetting and neglecting the bigger matters of the law. And if Jesus were to come to America today, he'd tell our politicians the same thing. You're telling telling people what light bulbs and stoves they can buy and what cars they can drive, but you won't tell them don't murder your children or don't mutilate your children. Are we neglecting the weightier matters of the law? Yeah, we are. So we have to be engaged. We're supposed to be salt and light. And that requires you to speak up when necessary. But let's go back to our problem verse. Everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities. There is no authority except that which God has established. Even Hitler. Even Hitler. We're supposed to submit to Hitler? Is that what this means? You notice what Hitler said? You know what he said about Protestant pastors? Because most of them caved and did not resist the Nazis. Eric Metaxas has written about this in his book, um, Letter to the American Church. Here's what Hitler actually said. You can do anything you want to Protestant pastors. They will submit. They are insignificant little people, submissive as dogs, and they sweat with embarrassment when you talk to them. And he said that in German, which made it even more obnoxious. <laughs> <laughs> so, you're supposed to submit? <laughs> Has to hear, Juden? <laughs> you lied? <laughs> he lied. He said there are no Jews here, and he has them in his attic. You sinned. You lied, and you didn't submit to the governing authorities. What is wrong with you? Aren't you supposed to just tell the truth and trust God? Christians actually argue over this. Must we always obey the government? Are there any other instances in the Bible where they don't obey the government and it's God blesses them for it? Can you think of any? Right. Who? Right. Hebrew midwives. Wow, you can pick up your uh, check after the sermon. Yeah, that's right. Look at that. She didn't see this beforehand, by the way. Examples of God's blessings to those who disobey to fulfill a higher obligation. The Hebrew midwives. When the Pharaoh wants all the Hebrew boys killed, the Hebrew midwives go, Oh, no, these Hebrew midwives or these Hebrew Hebrew, uh, mothers, they give birth too quickly. We don't even know what happened to the babies. Like They just lied. How about in uh, Joshua's day? Can anyone think of... Rahab, Rahab actually lies to protect the spies and is blessed by it. How about Shadrach, Meshach, and Tibet we go? <laughs> In Daniel, they're blessed for disobeying Nebuchadnezzar. And how about Daniel himself? Remember, you can't pray. No more praying. What does he do? He goes up into his room by the window. And he prays facing Jerusalem. They throw him in the lion's den. You know the story. Because he decided that he's going to obey God rather than men, which is exactly what the apostles said when the temple authority said, don't talk about Jesus anymore. It says in Acts 5, Peter and the apostles said, we must obey God rather than men. You have to obey God rather than men. There are two situations where you don't obey the government. Number one, when they tell you to sin. Or number two, when they tell you you can't do something that God told you to do. So if they try and get you to sin, you're not going to comply. Or if they try and say, you can't do what God told you to do, like preach the gospel, you're not going to comply either. In fact, what would you do if you got a knock on your door today from HHS, the Biden administration HHS, which a year and a half ago said that if you have a young person in your home, say a young boy who thinks he's a girl and you don't give that child gender affirming care, the child may be taken from you by HHS. What are you gonna do when they come to your door and say, oh, Carson thinks he's a girl. We need to give him hormone blockers and maybe surgery. Are you gonna comply with that? Does Romans 13 force you to comply with that? That's where we are, that's where it's heading. Let me just point out, there are no verses in the Bible. There are no verses in the Bible. Do you think when, when Paul is writing Romans, he said, here's chapter 13, verse 1. No. When were the chapter and verse divisions put in? About 500 years ago to help us navigate the text, which is really important. Why? Because it'd be hard to find your way around this big series of books if you didn't have numbers. I mean, imagine if Pastor Zach got up here one Sunday, he didn't have numbers in his Bible, you didn't have numbers in your Bible, and he simply looked at you and he said, let's go about two-thirds of the way in, let's see if we can find the same spot. Now, you couldn't do that, right? So you need numbers to navigate the text. The problem is we tend to think if it's got a number in front of it, we can take it out and make it say whatever we want. We not only have to read around the text, we have to read other passages in the Bible to try and get the complete picture. When you focus on just one verse, you're not getting the complete picture. And nobody can tell you everything in one verse. So you got to look around the scriptures to see what else is going on. And when you do, you see this. And you realize what Paul means by Romans 13 is this is not a universal command with no exceptions. This is a general command with few exceptions. Does that make sense? Because you have a higher duty to protect innocent life than you do to tell the truth to a guilty murderer. You have a higher duty to protect your child from some government tyrant then you do to submit to the governing authorities. Because, yes, it's generally true, governments are there as servants of God. But when governments go bad and try and tell you you can't follow God, that's when you need to go in the other direction. You can't get it from one verse. You've got to know the context. By the way, some of you are going to hate me for this, but that's okay. I leave in like 15 minutes. doesn't matter. <laughs> But this is why you should never take Jeremiah 29.11 as if it's some kind of promise to you. You know Jeremiah 29.11, right? Oh, the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you, plans to give you hope in a future. You know this. It's on coffee mugs. It's on pillows. It's on posters. It's on birthday cards. It's everywhere. What a great verse. And it's not a promise to us today. Why? Who's it a promise to? This is the interactive portion of the program. Who's it a promise to? It's a promise to the exiles who were kicked out of Israel, forcibly taken out of Israel by Nebuchadnezzar in 586 B.C. and taken to Babylon where Daniel was. And what God said through the prophet Jeremiah is he said to them that 70 years from now, I'm going to prosper you. I'm going to bring you back into the land. It was a promise to them 2,600 years ago. Not a promise to 21st century Christians. In fact, when people quote Jeremiah 29.11 as if it's a promise to them, I said, why don't you quote Jeremiah 44.11 as if it's a promise to you? Why? What's Jeremiah 44.11? Jeremiah 44.11 is what God promised to do to the exiles that went to Egypt. And he warned them, don't go to Egypt. You know what Jeremiah 44.11 says? says, it says, I will destroy you in all Judah. You don't see that stitched into a pillow. You don't see that on a coffee mug. You don't see that on a birthday card. Happy birthday. I will destroy you in all Judah. That is so sweet, Grandma. Thank you so much. You know, we can't just take verses out of context and expect to get the truth. You've got to read around it, look at other passages to help you get the truth. This is what systematic theology is all about. So, you know there are times you're going to have to disobey the government. In fact, what did we do with the Nazi war criminals after World War II? What did we do with them? Where did we try them? Nuremberg, Germany. This is the Nuremberg trials. This is Henry Goring, who was the head of the Luftwaffe. Some say he was second or third in command of all of Nazi Germany. And he was testifying. He was sentenced to be executed, as well as several others. And the night before he was to be executed, he took a cyanide pill and committed suicide. Nobody knows how he got the cyanide pill, but he killed himself. Now, the entire premise of the Nuremberg trials is that you need to disobey your government if they tell you to do something immoral. Why? What was the Nazi, what was the Nazi uh, excuse for doing what they did? Oh, we were just following orders. And what did we say at Nuremberg? You had a moral obligation to disobey immoral orders because there's a standard beyond your government. That standard is what they call now international law. C.S. Lewis called it the moral law. If you read Mere Christianity, you'll see him talking about the moral law. Thomas Jefferson in the Declaration of Independence called it nature's law. Basically, it's God's nature. God is the standard of goodness that judges all nations. If God doesn't exist, you realize nothing's ultimately right or wrong. It's just your opinion against somebody else's. It's just your opinion against Hitler's opinion. It's just the Allies' opinion against Hitler's opinion. You couldn't have a Nuremberg trial if God didn't exist. It'd be just someone's opinion against somebody else's. So the whole premise of Nuremberg presupposes you have not only the right, but an obligation to disobey immoral orders. Now, does anyone know who Diedrich Bonhoeffer was? Bonhoeffer was a German pastor in World War II who tried to get other pastors to resist Hitler. Most of them, as Hitler said, acquiesced. They submitted rather than stood against the Nazis. In fact, Bonhoeffer was part of the plot to kill Hitler, which you probably saw in the movie Valkyrie with Tom Cruise. On July twentieth, 1944, they put a bomb in the Wolf's Lair, which is now Poland. And the problem was the bomb was on one side of a pillar of a table, and Hitler was on the other side of the pillar. And while four guys died, one of them wasn't Hitler. He escaped. So a lot of people after that July 20th assassination attempt were rounded up, Bonhoeffer, one of them, and he was taken to the Buchenwald concentration camp. And about a month before the war ended, he was hung in the woods outside of Buchenwald. And Bonhoeffer wrote a book called The Cost of Discipleship. Enough of this easy believism, cheap grace, he said, we're called to actually do something, not just believe it. Here's what he said. Mere waiting and looking on is not Christian behavior. The Christian is called to sympathy and action. Not in the first place by his own sufferings, but by the sufferings of, the brethren, of his brethren for whose sake Christ suffered. And there was a group of Christians in Germany at the time who... We're trying to convert Hitler. They were called the Oxford Movement. That's the way. We'll just try and evangelize Hitler and that'll solve all the problems. Well, here's what Bonhoeffer said about that. The Oxford Movement was naive enough to try and convert Hitler, a ridiculous failure to recognize what is going on. We are the ones to be converted, not Hitler. You see his point? We're not following Jesus right now. We're not denying ourselves and carrying our cross. We're hiding. We're, we're hiding under our desks. We're afraid. While the trains are taking the Jews to Auschwitz, right by our church, we're just choosing to sing our hymns louder so we don't have to hear the screams. We need to be converted. Forget Hitler. So you might say, Frank, this is all kind of theoretical because the Nazis aren't coming to our door. We live in America. You sure? What happens when uh, they do come to your door and say, here your kid identifies as a girl, what are you going to do then? Or when you go to work tomorrow and your HR director says, what are your pronouns, what are you going to do? Or some man trying to transition to become a woman says, you have to call me a she or there's going to be a lawsuit, or you might even get fired. What are you going to do? You know, when Hitler took over, they didn't throw the Jews in the ovens as soon as he took over. It took a long time to get to that point. One little step after another little step after another little step. You know, the whole pronoun thing, it's just another step where you're supposed to acquiesce You're supposed to submit, and in this case, they want you to lie. And if you're a Christian, are you going to lie just to get along? What can you do if somebody comes to you and says, what are your pronouns? Here's something I think you can do, a couple of questions you can ask. Maybe it's your HR director, your boss, somebody at work. Two questions. First question. Do you consider yourself a tolerant person? What do you think they're going to say? Well, of course, right? Next question. Great. Because if I have an opinion different than yours, you'll tolerate it then, right? If they get all mad at you, you can say, what happened to tolerance? I thought you claimed you were tolerant. Another question you can ask is this, do you think it's right to try and force people to violate their conscience? Most people are gonna say no. At that point you can say, great, then please don't try and force me to violate mine. Because I love you, I can't lie to you. That wouldn't be right. You see love doesn't mean approval Love means telling people the truth regardless of the consequences. You guys know this. How many people in here are parents? All right, how many people in here are former children? Okay, good. That's all of us, right? Parents, if you approved of everything your 13-year-old wanted to do, would you have been a loving parent? No, of course not. Love doesn't mean approval. Love means seeking what's best for the loved one. And that means telling people the truth. As Paul says in the passage, everyone reads at their wedding, but nobody obeys, 1 Corinthians 13. Love rejoices in the truth. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing. Love always protects. Love always perseveres. So you have to tell people the truth because you love them. You say, well, how how are we going to do this? Well, Pastor Zach already talked about it last week. Go back one chapter to Romans chapter 12. Here's what it says. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. This isn't a passage about finding God's perfect will for your life, like who do I marry and what job. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about how you conduct yourself in society among believers and unbelievers morally. So don't be conformed. You need to renew your mind. You need to follow what is right, good, and true. And that takes work. Don't continue to acquiesce step after step after step because one day it's going to be too late. I don't know if you saw this yesterday, but in Canada, the Psychologic Association, whatever they are up there, told Jordan Peterson he had to go for re-education training. Have you heard of this? Yeah, a re-education camp because they didn't like what Jordan Peterson thought politically. And the only way this kind of stuff continues is if Christians continue to remain cowards continue to remain silent we can't do that anymore ladies and gentlemen so the great book of Romans our duty to government yes you have a duty to government but you have a greater duty to God most of the time you are going to obey and submit to government you ought to be the best citizen out there but when they try and get you to sin or tell you you can't do something God told you to do That's when you have to go the other way. That's when you have to take up your cross and take the consequences,
0: whatever they are.